Hello, I'm David Oakes, and this is a very special season of Trees A Crowd. For this season, I'm uprooting the secrets and stories beneath the 56-ish native trees of the British Isles. And if my calculations are correct, then it is the 28th of September 2021, which means it is exactly 955 years to the day that a Frenchman stepped foot in East Sussex and began the Norman invasion of Britain. So what better day than today than to explore the impact on the British Isles by another coloniser, arguably our most successful and important one. Appetite whetted? Good. Then cue Bella. Uprooting the secrets and stories beneath the 56-ish native trees of the British Isles. So I live in an area of the Mendips that is famed for its rock deposits and as such has been, for better or worse, relentlessly quarried by man going back to the Iron Age. Most of this time, mankind has been after the immense amount of limestone present here, but on a very cool side note, there's also an amount of Silurian volcanic rock present, which is basically compressed ash from a now long extinct Somerset volcano. So, I live on a volcano. Pop that in your pipe and smoke it. Anyway... When man, his big yellow Tonka trucks and his TNT plungers have enough limestone, they leave behind a barren landscape with very little vegetation present. One that looks not all that dissimilar to the surface of the moon. But if you were to visit these disused quarries just a year or so later on, say, you would find, having appeared as if from nowhere with an eerie rapidity, that you were to be greeted by this week's trees. For today, and yesterday, and dating back to the end of the last Ice Age, and indeed pre-freeze too, these seemingly life-defying rocky landscapes prove perfect homes for trees number 40 and 41. Silver birch and bony birch. The silver birch, Betula pendula, and the downy birch, Betula pubescens, a.k.a. the birches. And for those of you that are screaming into their earpods at me that there are three British birch species, say that after a few drinks, well, you're not wrong. The dwarf birch, Betula nana, can be found growing up in the Scottish Highlands, but they do not grow to a sufficient height for me to include in my list of my 56-ish trees. The downy and silver birches, however, do, and are beautiful medium-sized trees reaching around 25 metres or so in the wild. Our birches are often the first colonisers in a new open landscape. Why? Well, for one, they use the winds. Like all the Betulaceae, last week's alder, this week's birches, and the hazel and hornbeam of podcasts yet to come, they are wind-pollinated. Female catkins stand bright green and erect, waiting for the winds to blow in pollen from the male catkins, which are long yellow lamb's tails that hang together in groups of two to four at the ends of the twigs. Our birches are wind-dispersed too. Gusts lift the seeds across huge expanses, dropping them into post-Ice Age rockscapes or 21st century abandoned quarries. For two, our birches, but particularly the downy and indeed the dwarf, which I won't be mentioning again, are tolerant of very low temperatures. The downy birch can grow further north than any other broadleaf species, reaching as far north as the Arctic and can even be claimed as one of the very few native trees of Iceland. And three, birches benefit hugely from the assistance of mycorrhizal fungi, but more on that to follow. As a result of all these qualities, birches tended to be the first in, and indeed the last out, during each of the interglacial periods. 
But when the Ice Age most recently retreated, some 11,700 years ago, the birch, with the similarly wind-dispersed willows, were the first trees to blow in and take root. The deep, far-reaching root systems transported nutrients from other areas of early forests, which the trees then redistributed through their fallen foliage to the forest floor, making the ground suitable for further colonisers. The birches, particularly open canopies, in turn permitted coniferous pines to follow them, and then the deciduous hazel, before the oaks finally claimed dominance. Culturally, the birch's importance as a pioneer species is echoed in the old Celtic Olm alphabet, spelt Ogham, but definitely not pronounced Ogham, like an absolute Wally may have done back in the episode about crab apples. The birch takes its place front and centre in the Olm as the alphabet's first letter, Baith, which is the old Irish word for birch tree. The letters of the Olm are even called Fader, which in old Irish means trees, wood, or timber, for each Fader looks like a little rudimentary tree. Sprouting from a central stem or trunk, the letters are differentiated by the number and direction of its branches. Now, these sprouting branches are even called a flesk, excuse the pronunciation, which literally translates as twig. And if that wasn't enough, the correct manner of interpreting these trees with twigs, these fader with flesks, is knowing the correct order with which to read them. Fortunately, an Irish text written somewhere between the 7th and 12th century, the Aurochep Nenegas, tells us how. Right of stem, left of stem, athwart of stem, through stem, about stem. Thus is a tree climbed. To it, treading on the root of the tree first, with thy right hand first and thy left hand after, then with the stem and against it and through it and about it. The ohm is climbed as a tree is climbed. The ohm is a language constructed of trees and twigs, a language that is not read, it is climbed. Of the Ohm's original 20 letters, seven other trees are represented. They are the alder, willow, oak, hazel, pine, ash and yew. Additionally, we also see the aspen added a few centuries later. Through a study of linguistics, without even a sniff of paleontological research, we are presented with a picture of what our ancient woodlands must have looked like to the ancient Celts, a forest of nine-ish species, our oldest trees. And what do they have in common? Well, they are the native trees that benefit the most from substantial relationships with fungi. As I've already outlined, although the birches arrived first with their mycorrhizal advantages in tow, they did not remain our forest's most dominant species. The birches had worked hard in these harsh, rocky, post-Ice Age soils, but were subsequently due to be replaced by the Scots pine. Birches, it seems, were victims of their own success. It is Darwin's survival of the fittest. Only the mightiest tree conqueror prevails, the crown falling upon the canopy, which adapted quickest to changing conditions. But, at the risk of enraging Darwin's beagle, it is not as simple as that. By following artificially irradiated isotopes of carbon, we, or to be more precise, Sir David Reed and his colleagues in 1984, discovered that sugars could pass via the roots and mycorrhizal networks between different trees of the same species. Energy in the form of carbon dioxide could move through these networks from one tree with an abundance of energy to another with a deficit. Trees were sharing. And in 1997, Suzanne Simard went a step further. 
She and her team demonstrated this exchange of carbon sharing in a wild setting in Canada between different species, between birch trees and fir trees, and the same thing occurs between our native Scots pine and native birches. During the cold winter months, via fungal networks, young evergreen pines provide birches with energy. And during the summer months, when the canopy of the birches block the sun from the pines, the energy flow would be reversed, and the birches would reciprocally support the pines in kind. Far from survival of the fittest, our trees exhibit something akin to altruism. So, although the birches were not to remain the dominant species of our forests, the fungal networks that they helped develop were actually supporting a much longer game plan. They were to benefit from the pines that would soon come to replace them, from the hazel that replaced them, from the oaks that replaced them, and so forth. In fact, all of the species that spent time and effort logging onto the vast network of fungal hyphae, the wood wide web, benefit from each other's collective efforts. And to take this one step further, mycologist Merlin Sheldrake suggests that our view of the woodlands is corrupted by a plant centrism, and that paying more attention to plants than fungus makes us fungus blind. And he may well be right. For even if one tree species dies out or loses a controlling stake, the fungus will likely have already nurtured another host for its own survival. In botany, top trumps fungus trumps trees. But. Which fungi exactly does the birch nurture? Bircher. In short, loads of them. But arguably, the birch's most famous fungal friend is fly agaric, the hallucinogenic and occasionally deadly bright red and white spotted toadstools that cantankerous brownies sit upon in fairy rings, and which Alice is seduced into eating in Wonderland. Dating from around 1,500 years BC, the sacred Hindu Sanskrit text, the Rig Veda, speaks of a drink called soma. We have drunk soma and become immortal. We have attained the light the gods discovered. It is now commonly believed that soma was made using the hallucinogenic fly agaric fungus. Hindu wise men would drink of this magical elixir to get closer to the gods, and indeed poorer, arguably unwise men would then pay to drink their urine, for their liquid gold would still contain some of the euphoria-inciting alkaloids present in the fungus. There are similar tales of reindeer seeking out fly agaric too to make Christmas just that little bit more sparkly. Amongst many others, the birch also plays host to the birch milkcap, the birch brittlegill, and the birch night fungi, all of which appear above the ground as beautiful brown toadstools. And growing on the trunk itself is the birch polypore, aka the razor strop fungus, having been so named from when barbers used thick leathery strips of it to strop or sharpen their cutthroat razors. In fact, this practice predates modern barbers. The ancient human popsicle Ertzi, see my episode on the blackthorn, was found frozen in the Alps with two pieces of birch polypore threaded upon a throng around his neck, presumably to sharpen his arrows, which, for the record, had shafts made of dogwood, another of our native trees, but one that I haven't told you about yet. So just ignore me for now. Unfortunately, however, it is the birch's excellent ability to attract mycorrhizal fungi that also leaves it susceptible to saprophytic and parasitic fungi that can bring on diseases. One such fungus is the parasitic witch's broom fungus, which causes the birch tree to react by sprouting densely grouped twigs amongst the branches. They look like giant tangled birds' nests, or, as their name implies, a witch's broom or besom. 
implements which were also traditionally made from birch twigs. Can you sense the segue coming? But whereas the parasitic witch's broom fungus could be considered to have a malign presence, a true birch broom or birch besom and indeed the birch in general to those of a witchy disposition was considered a force for purification or renewal. The witch's besom with bristles of birch twigs bound together was used to purify and spiritually cleanse an area before ritual or ceremony. They saw the highly recognisable white-slash-silvery bark of our birches as representing a whiter shade of witchcraft. Perhaps this is also why traditional Scandinavian sauna practice seems it right and proper to commence with a beating by bundles of birch twigs too, and why in Scottish folklore a barren cow when herded with a birch branch would become fertile and bear a healthy calf. The Welsh move away from the bovine for their flirty folktales. On a wedding day, birch brooms were set astride a newlywed's front door. The bride and groom were then to vault their way over the broom and into their new lives together. The joke being that if the bride stepped over the broom, then she would miraculously become pregnant that very night, if indeed she wasn't already. After which point, a cradle made from birchwood was believed to protect the newly born from any wandering malicious spirits. But birches are not all purifying brooms and all perfect newborn bovine or human babies. Birching was a corporal punishment, one shamefully used on the British Isles, on the Isle of Man to be precise, until as recently as 1976. Birching was reserved usually for young men and boys, but was having one's bare skin thrashed by a number of tightly bound birch branches. It was used as a punishment in schools, a punishment during the French Revolution, and it eventually replaced the cat of nine tails in the Royal Navy in the 1860s. More precise than the cat... The birch rod in the hands of the wrong person could inflict a terrifying amount of pain. On a more cheerier note, the birch is perhaps the most easily recognised of all our native trees. You can spot them a literal mile away-ish. For both the silver and downy birches have a lustrous, shining bark, although sometimes it can be masked by a fuzzy olive-green algae, particularly upon the downy birch, which can often grow in wetter habitats. But telling the difference between our two species and the hybrids that might result from crossbreeding might be a little trickier. But the best way, as is usually the case, is by looking at the leaves. Silver birch leaves have a biserrated margin, by which I mean it has two sizes of serrations, and its leaf shape is iconic. It is shaped like the ace of spades. Contrary to this, downy birch leaves are egg-shaped and have a simply serrated margin. Downy twigs, unlike the shiny twigs of the silver birch, are covered in fine hairs, hence the tree's name and the Latin name pubescens similarly refers to the fluffy-haired nature of these twigs. This is a birch tree seemingly going through its puberty. And unsurprisingly for a tree that has been on our islands since the very beginning, the birch is fantastic for biodiversity it has had plenty of time to make friends. The leaves provide food for hundreds of invertebrates, which in turn provide food for the creatures that feed on these. Woodpeckers nest in the trunks. The seeds feed greenfinches and redpolls, including the unfortunately red-listed lesser redpole. And the light, open canopies of both species allow grasses, mosses and wildflowers to thrive beneath them. Displays of primroses, violets and the splendiferous bluebell offer magical displays when weaving their way through the trunks of our argent birches. And its services are not merely plentiful to the wild world. We humans owe birch much. 
Birchwood is used as firewood for making furniture and to make plywood. In years gone by, it was the birch that fueled the Lancashire cotton industry by being turned into spools, bobbins and reels. During times of famine, the inner bark of the birch has been ground down as a rudimentary flower and the sap of the birch is sweet and it is drinkable, traditionally seen as a cure for almost all ailments and currently touted as the newest trendy natural remedy to be drunk by all who fancy a thorough detox. But better yet, birch sap can be distilled further to make a pleasing syrup or liqueur. But to end, the purpose to which birch has been put that I find the most fascinating is that birch bark can be stripped off without causing harm to the tree and has been used as a rudimentary paper for centuries. Buddhist teachings written upon birch bark have been found from the 1st century AD. In Russia, personal letters and children's doodles that are amazing, dating from the 11th century, have been found scratched upon birch bark. And, unfortunately, this practice continued there until more recently, where victims of the Soviet gulags wrote secret letters to loved ones upon the bark of these remarkable trees. So that is it, a tree that has supported life, both animal and vegetable, since the very moment the ice melted. A tree that is also likely to still be here long after we are gone and the ice caps start planning their re-expansion. Thank you to Alan Devine for being my mystery voice this week. He is currently planting birch trees all over his land, so that fitted perfectly. And thank you to my great-aunt, who, as every week, is invaluable in getting all my botanical facts in order. Next week, we'll have the hazel, but until then, leave us a review. Join us on our Patreon. Tell a hundred friends to download our back catalogue, and I will see you next week, along with a few extra special guests from all corners of the British Isles. Goodbye for now. A pudding, the secrets and stories beneath the 56-ish native trees of the bridge.